I feel like I can say it again. <clears throat> Not going to wear it out uh, until January is over, but Happy New Year in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ who has not failed us yet, and I thank you that you didn't fail him today by letting uh, our first ice storm of the year keep you away. It's amazing we were able to have church today with the ton of ice on the parking lot and the overpasses, and yet you made it. I am grateful that we were out last night just praying that the Lord would be merciful primarily to all those who come so early to set up, just so messy and grateful that the weather did stay God stayed his hand that made set up a little bit easier. And grateful, as always, for those who put out tarps and chairs and wires and, and rearrange classrooms for babies and children so that we could just walk in and have a great morning of feasting, feasting on the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we look back on 2018 and say, you didn't fail us. And we failed you. We doubted. There were times where you asked us to pray more and obey more, to give more. We said no. Yet through the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, you forgave us and you brought us back to yourself. And you still prospered us. You kept our jobs going and you kept a roof over our head. You did not fail us. In fact, you brought us one year closer, 365 days closer to the city of God. The journey continued because you did not fail us. And we already look forward to the end of 2019 knowing that you will not fail us. Lord, there may be some in this very room today that will not see the end, will not see December. But by your sovereign choice, Lord, their lungs, their legs, their brains, their heart will cease to pump and flow. And they will be invited to be in your presence. And my goodness, you will not have failed them. You will have rewarded them. With the grandest of all sights and experiences, the beauty of God face to face. We thank you, Lord, all over the world last night, from babies to old folks in nursing homes, surgical units, prison cells, even those on the streets in Calcutta and the streets of America. You did call some of your people home. Some of them, Lord, were preaching the gospel. It cost them their life. And they lost everything on earth, Lord, and gained everything in eternity. You did not fail them. Whatever they lost on earth, you gave them a hundred times more as soon as they stepped across the finish line into the city of God. And you will not fail us. So today, Lord, use your word as a reminder. It's the only way for us to see into the invisible. It's through the visible word of God. So keep us reading, meditating, memorizing the infallible, life-giving words of God. 
It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray with gratitude that you have spoken. Amen. Over the past seven years, an organization known as Back to the Bible surveyed 100,000 people in 20 different countries. They did this over a period of seven years, and they found out about all the habits and routines that people would call spiritual disciplines. And by sorting all this through different uh, data processes and computer mechanisms, they discovered there was one clear, consistent weaving together only one principle that kept people spiritually strong and vibrant, and that is that they engage the Bible at least four times a week. Now, they all agreed that they enjoyed church attendance, tithing, serving in the community, but the thing that maintained their spiritual vitality was that at least four times a week they were engaged in personal Bible reading. And I've never met anybody that has spiritual, vibrant, hard affection for God that does not meet with God at least four or five times a week in Scripture. And this is true because the Bible is full of life. This is what Moses, in his parting words, told the Israelites. Deuteronomy 32, called the Song of Moses, because it's poetic, rhythmic, but really a speech made at the end of his life. He died shortly after saying these words to Israel, the nation he led for 40 years. Take to heart, verse 46, All the words I have solemnly declared to you this day so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. That's a big statement. What I'm saying today, as long as I'm quoting Scripture and not bringing a lot of other stuff into it, what I'm saying today is a matter of life and death. When I leave conversations where I've shared Christ, and I did it this week again with somebody that I met at the gym and shared the gospel of Christ, handing them our red euangelion track, and whether it's an acquaintance like at a, at a local business or whether it's somebody that I've known for a long time and they're not interested in the, the scripture that I would share, my heart breaks because I know that that person is choosing death. It's a big deal. These words, according to Moses, are life. So don't trifle with the words of scripture. They are Your life. If you're an authentic follower of Jesus Christ, there's at some point in your life, your journey, somebody at some point shared with you scripture, your heart was invigorated and brought to life because of the word of God that you heard. Tukichi Ichi was the definition of a repeat offender in Japan. Sentenced to prison more than 20 times. 1918, he was finally sentenced to death by hanging. 
two missionaries, American missionaries, Miss West, Miss McDonald, went to visit him on death row, gave him a copy of the New Testament. In his reading, he came across the statement by Christ made at the execution of Jesus as he stood hanging between earth and heaven on the cross, crucified between two criminals, Jesus being innocent, criminals being guilty. Jesus prayed, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing, speaking of his executioners. This is what happened when Tukichi read that statement in the Word of God. I was stabbed to the heart as if by a a five-inch nail. What did the verse reveal to me? Shall I call it the love of the heart of Christ? I do not know what to call it. I only know that with an unspeakable, grateful heart, I believed. As the days grow grow closer to his execution, the missionaries continued to visit him, sharing with him suffering in the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. How to prepare for suffering and glory. Again, he would write, People will say that I must have a very sorrowful heart because I am daily awaiting the execution of the death sentence. This is not the case. I feel neither sorrow nor distress nor any pain. Locked up in a prison cell six feet by nine in size, I am infinitely happier than I was in the days of my sinning. When I did not know God, day and night, I am talking with Jesus Christ. Then, in his journal, he briefly quotes Jesus Christ about being utterly poor, yet at the same time being utterly rich in Christ, and then he continues to write. Perhaps in the future, someone in the world may hear that the most desperate villain that ever lived repented of his sins and was saved by the power of Christ and so may come to repent also. Then it may be, though, that I am poor myself, I shall be able to make many rich. And all of this, a man that you would say is hopeless, foul, unclean, unreachable, depraved, was utterly born again because of one verse of Scripture from the Word of God. So much power is in the book of God, and the last word before he was executed, as he was being hanged, he wrote these words, My soul purified today returns to the city of God. This is the way it is for all of us who are saved. At one time or another, living a life that others would predict is unsavable, and then at some setting, one-on-one or in a church, On a radio, through a song, we hear the words of Scripture. And that day, our eternal trajectory is changed from death to life because of the power of the Word of God. This is how Peter says it happens. 1 Peter 1.3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth. If you have a problem with the word born again, you got a problem with the Bible. New birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter starts off his book by talking about a new birth has happened for all those who are in the ecclesia, the called out among the church. 
We've ex- we're all born again because for the first time in our life, we found something permanent to stand on. We've been standing on midair our whole life, drifting. And all of a sudden, for the first time, our feet are on something rock solid. And it here is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you, weigh, and you say, how did we find out about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And Peter tells us, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And this is the word that was preached to you. So when you read 1 Peter, you have this picture of this little baby that has been brought to life in its little crib, secure on this mile by mile, square mile, granite rock. The baby cannot be disturbed, is there for eternity, all secure, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, made alive by the powerful Word of God. This granite rock will rise and rise and take this child to the city of God one day. And that baby has no chance of falling off that rock. It's certain the baby's been born by the hope of the Word of God. But if that baby is going to grow on that rock and become a man or a woman that is spiritually mature, something else has to happen in relation to the Word. Second, 1 Peter chapter 2 moves right into the next chapter. Like newborn babies, so that little baby on that rock, just that little baby just got born, now that baby's got to grow. So we go from an infant, newborn infant, to a hungry baby in the imagery here. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Here's the key where I want to go today. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So, if you say, where are we heading today? My goal is to persuade you in 2019 to devote your life to Bible reading. Last week, my aim was to persuade you not to waste your life in worrying because it does no good and dishonors God and says He's not trustworthy. This week, my goal is to set your course in 2019 to read the Bible because the only way that you will ever grow in your confidence of the Lord is to spend your time reading the Bible because it's in the Bible that you taste the goodness of the Lord. This is how everything in life plays out. This is how you overcome sin. This is how you build your trust. This is how you find your mission in life. It happens. All spiritual growth occurs when you taste the milk and you crave the milk of the Word. Undeniable, Peter is linking the drinking of milk in verse 2 of chapter 2 with the Word of God in verse 24 of chapter 1. So, we don't just read the Bible for doctrine. We don't read the Bible for guidance. 
We read the Bible for affection. We read the Bible so we can taste God, that He is good. That's why we read. We, we desire to see God, that we might delight in God and be transformed by God. Let me give you a working definition of why we read the Bible. <clears throat> the goal of all Bible reading, this is a long definition. I'm going to give you a short one after this. If you don't like the long one, hang on. The goal of all Bible reading, <clears throat> well, let me, see, I'm scared. I'm always scared about the clock, so I'm basing this definition on this, this verse of the Bible. You know this. I was a little scared. To, all Scripture has got this, 2 Timothy 3.16, because if I told you why I read the Bible, you'd probably go here. All scriptures God breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the servant of God, oops, didn't need that P in there, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we read the scripture so we may be equipped for God's work. If we wanted to say that in 2019 terms, here's how I would say it. The goal of all Bible reading is to see and cherish the infinite value of God above all things. Because when you look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it just says, read the Bible so you'll be equipped. What I want you to understand is something that Paul didn't put in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. In that reading is the seeing of God. And in the seeing of God is the delighting and the tasting of God. Because if in your reading... You're not seeing, you're not tasting, there will be no delighting, there will not be any changing. So we read the Bible to cherish God so that the goal of all Bible readings is see and cherish God as infinitely valuable above all things so that we'll be filled with incomparable joy so when we see God we're filled with joy so that we adore Christ as sovereign king and humble savior, so that we will desire to be continually shaped by his power working in us and yielded to his purposes through us. That's why we read the Bible. Now, he said, you lost me? Way back. I'll make it shorter. We read the Bible to see God, deepen our affection for God, so that we yield all of aspects of our life to God. You know, through the years, I've been preaching, I've been doing this for well over 30 years, and people ask me all the time, do you think that preaching is, is an inefficient use of time because nobody can remember on Monday what you said on Sunday? And they're like, hurt, it's supposed to hurt my feelings by saying that. I don't view preaching, the goal of it is to prepare you for a test on Monday. I tell you what I'm trying to do today. I'm just trying to hold God up like a diamond and turn him more and more so you'll see how beautiful he is so you'll leave sin because he's more beautiful than your sin. 
So I'm not interested in you taking a test on what I said today. Now, I do hope that I teach in an orderly manner that you might remember that what I said yeah, he, he took us to Deuteronomy 32. He took us to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And in a minute, he took us to the book of Psalms. But really not interested. Listen, when you eat a Christmas meal, can you tell me what you ate for your Christmas meal this, just a few weeks ago? No, but you sure enjoyed it, and it sure caused you to fall in love with your family That's what we do when we feast together in church. We just enjoy God. And when we enjoy God and see God, that's when we obey God and give our life to serve God. But none of this is to produce intellectual uh, boasting in how much we know of God. Let me tell you the reason why I love, let me tell you how I do my Bible reading. You say, I, you, read the Bible. This year, how do we read the Bible? I read, every day my goal is to read something from the New Testament every day. So like right now, beginning of the year, I'm in the Gospels. So you start with like the Gospel of Mark, short. So I, I like I'll be in Mark, then I'll be in Genesis, and then I read a psalm. At least a psalm every day. And people that I'm chasing after spiritually say, Richard, you should tell them to read a proverb every day as well. You should. I don't every day, but you probably should. Let me tell you why I read the Psalms every day. Because the Psalms, as no other scriptures do, paint a picture of, of people who delight in God. It's just photograph after photograph of like catching people, worshiping God, and it's beautiful. Like, look at Psalm 1. Psalm 1, just, just picture the Psalms. Picture the Psalms as a forest. Like you're driving your car and you're entering like a forest and wilderness and canyons and waterfalls of the beauty of God. And you're just going in there to enjoy God. And, and Psalm 1, over Psalm 1 is a banner that said... Here is the way to enjoy and delight in God by talking to Him. So Psalm 1 is sort of the gate into the forest. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So let me stop here. Because the word law is used a lot in the Psalms. So whenever you read the word law in the Psalms, you should think immediately instruction, righteous words, wisdom, understanding, revelation, the unveiling of, of wisdom. Law would be God making clear what's on his heart and mind. That's all wrapped up. In the word law. And so the psalmist from chapters 1 through, through, through the final book, which is chapter 150, this guy is rejoicing that a God who has created a hundred billion galaxies and there are hundreds 
of trillions of stars. And, and the Bible says that God has named each of the stars by name. That that God has condescended and has written us a book called the law. Filled with perfect instruction of how we may know exactly everything that's in the heart of God. And the psalmist delight in knowing the law of God. I will never tire of that quote by John Wesley. He said, God has written a book. It's not on PowerPoint. I added it at the last minute. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. How to land on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way for this end. He came from heaven and he hath written it down in a book. Give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. This is all wrapped up in the word law. God has shown us the way to heaven. So what happens when a man applies the law to his life? He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. But the wicked, he's like, a tree planted by, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And I didn't put the remainder of the verse on there. It says, but the wicked will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. So back and forth between all the Psalms, what you have is you have a contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous and the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous in the book of Psalms from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150 is their attitude toward the law of God. The righteous love the law of God. They love the instruction of God. The unrighteous hate the law of God. They hate the unrighteous. The instruction of God. Now what I want to do in closing today, nowhere is the love of the law of God more obvious than in Psalm 119. And what I want to do today, before I even get there, let me just introduce Psalm 119 to you. Now as you're riding through this, as you're riding through this forest, beautiful forest of 150 Psalms, you come to Psalm 119 and all of a sudden you realize that you hit a redwood tree. You hit the greatest of all the trees of the 150 trees in the Psalms. You come to a tree that's 176 feet tall, and its closest competitor is Psalm 72, which is only 78 feet tall. So Psalm 119 is 176 verses, and it's laid out in the most unique design it's 22 sections, and each section begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and each section contains eight verses. 22 sections, eight verses each, and the theme of Psalm 119 is this man's delight in the law of God because it helps him see God. I just want you to see this man's love of God as he delights in God through the Word of God. Psalm 119, 14. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Now, again, I want you to see how he's tasting God in his word. If you don't delight in God, you'll never be transformed by God. You'll never be set apart to use God. It all is this sense of delight. Again, my point 
We read the Bible not for doctrine, but for delight. Not for knowledge, but for love. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. I delight in your commands because I love them. I delight in great peace have those who love your law and nothing can make them stumble. I obey your statutes for I love them greatly. Now listen, when you read the Bible, you're going to come across the word um, delight, happy, joy, peace, gladness. Rejoice, celebrate. They're all synonyms. And because people say you should have joy in the Lord and it's not the same as happiness, they're all the same in God's eyes. I'm happy in the Lord. I have joy in the Lord. Celebrate the Lord. Party with God. Applaud God. They're all the same. 2,000 times in Scripture, the psalmist and other writers talk about their joy in God. It is the will of God that you so see Him in your Bible reading that you delight in Him because only when you delight in God will you ever say, change me, use me, send me. If you don't see God, you'll never delight in God You'll never cherish God. You'll never be begged to be changed or sent by God. God wants your joy. Satan wants your joyless brand of Christianity that he may spread throughout the world to produce other joyless Christians. George Mueller lived from 1805 to 1898. Now, if you, remember George Mueller was famous in England for starting orphanages. In his lifetime, he housed 10,000 children with no money. Relied, as no one I've ever read in any biograph biographical, relied on prayer. But in 1841, if you read Mueller's biography, something drastically happened, changed his life. He said that he discovered in 1841 there was a reorientation in his thinking that no longer was he to get up and to start reading the Bible as a means for preparing sermons, fundraising for orphans, witnessing to people. But from here on out, this is what he said. I saw more clearly than ever the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing that I ought to be concerned about was not how I could serve the Lord, not how I could glorify the Lord, but how to get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. And he said that as he did that, as he started focusing 
on nourishing his soul, getting his soul happy in God. He never worried about how to pray. He said because prayer started just coming out of his happiness, never had to worry about. I love this. He said, I realized that from that point on that by breakfast time, with rare exceptions, I was in a peaceful and happy state of heart and I had become food for other believers because of the strength that I had experienced in the inner, inner man. Now, I want to look at Psalm 119 in our final seven minutes. Because I want you to love Psalm 119. Tomorrow morning, just say, I don't know where to read my Bible. I'm going to read Psalm 119. I'm just going to start there. Just Maybe you could just read. We've been doing it as a staff over the past four months. One, one, one Psalm. It's, a, it's 176 verses. It's long. So we've been taking eight verses a week to do it. And I feel guilty that I'm just sort of cramming it in one sermon because Charles Bridges wrote 500 pages of commentary on Psalm 119 and Thomas Manton preached 190 sermons on Psalm 119. So it's a lot there. I just want you to look at what it's so full of how it covers every, every life. This is how to keep yourself pure. How can a young man personally... How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. I mean, this is not academic for this man. He's been there. He knows that his heart is prone to wander, prone to leave the God that he loves. And he says the only thing that can defeat sin in his life is the power of the Word of God. If I saturate with my heart with the Word of God and I see God, I see the value of God, I cherish God, I will not want sin more than I want God. You know, for those who've made a practice of reading the Bible, you know the greatest defeater of sin, the greatest beauty that can be seen, the greatest tree in the forest, the greatest waterfall in the wilderness, in all of the Bible reading, in the thousands of words in the New Testament and the hundreds of images in the Old Testament are the portraits of Jesus Christ that you daily come across in reading the Bible. The Bible re- repeatedly calls us to leave sin, but it repeatedly gives us hope for those who fail to leave sin. 1 John 1, 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. That is a warning. It, it sobers us. It causes us to fear and tremble. But look what the Bible does, the waterfall of grace that follows it. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So we read the word of God. We see God, his beauty. And 
We taste and see that the Lord is good, that Jesus is good, and we are freed from the addiction of pornography and bitterness. We're freed. We're freed by the power of what we see of God in His Word. Nothing like the Word of God to keep us from living in bondage to sin. Look how the Word of God gives us wisdom. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. <clears throat> you rebuke the arrogant who are separated from you. They're, they're under a curse because of their pride. Those who stray from your commands. Look how the psalmist begs God, open my eyes because I'm blind. What vulnerability is this? That he, he prays, I cannot see, God. I'm missing it. My eyes are blind. My brain needs to be enlightened. My heart is hard. My will is stubborn. And so he's crying out, God, something, something is amiss here. Change me through your word. Open my eyes. Because I'm missing God. I read the other day an interesting quote. The world thinks that because we can put a man on the moon and cure disease, and build skyscrapers and establish universities, that we can understand things without reference to God. But this is a pathetically parochial Small point of view because it assumes that the material universe is large and God is small. What that quote basically is saying reminds us, Jonathan Edwards reminded us this, if you look at all the material matter in the universe, all the material matter, all the stars that are made up of matter, all the galaxies that are made up of matter, they make up a very small amount of the universe that is immaterial and not made up of matter. And so what we do as humans, we're so consumed with all that material world, the things that we can touch and feel and see and purchase and possess, that we ignore the invisible, which is God. So the psalmist is saying, open my eyes that I may see the invisible rather than being trapped by the visible. Look how often the psalmist in 119 prays for seeing. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees. Give me understanding. Verse 35, direct me in the path of your commands. The earth is filled with your love. Teach me. Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding. I love how John Piper says this. If God wore a coat with pockets, he would carry the universe in one of his pockets like a peanut. To ponder the meaning of the peanut without reference to God's majesty, is the work of a fool. So imagine if God were standing in front of you wearing a, a long coat, 
God is here, and there's a peanut that is the universe in his pocket, and instead of focusing on God, all you want to do is ask him questions about the peanut. And this is what man does without the Word of God, focuses on the peanut and misses the God who holds the peanut. And finally, look at how the psalmist handles pain. I'm a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Let your compassions come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands give me delight. Rulers persecute me without cause, but my heart trembles at your word. The reason I love this particular section in Psalm 119, no one that we know of in modern writing loves Psalm 119 more than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I know that's been painful to watch all sermon. My ear has changed shape from last week. Dietrich Bonhoeffer clung to Psalm 119. The last of his writings were on Psalm 119. He was a German Lutheran pastor faced with the greatest decision of his life as he watched the rise of Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany. Should he, as a pastor of a church, join the resistance movement join a conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler or should he stay on the sidelines? And it just crushed him and it was in torment. And so he he went to America to think about it. He went to England to think about it. He pondered in Germany. He met with pastors in London. He met with pastors and seminarians in England. And his soul was in torment. And it was in his ponderings and his readings in Psalm 119 that he found comfort and realized that in this earth he was a stranger. A world of injustice. A world where nothing on this earth was ever going to fully make sense. And the only way that the servant of God would ever have things make sense to him would be by reading the Word of God. And Bonhoeffer said, This Word, the Word of God, will hold me to God. It will let me feel His power. And when the Word is familiar and close to me, I can find my way in a strange land. I can know justice in a land of injustice, security in the midst of insecurity, and patience in the midst of suffering. And he clung to Psalm 119 all the way to the gallows when he was hanged to death for his part in the resistance movement in the assassination attempt against Adolf Hitler. The Bible is given to us that in the midst of an unjust earth and 
unexplainable suffering that we would cling to God with hope simply through the clear expression that He is trustworthy in His Word. Read the Bible, cling to God, delight in God above all earthly treasures. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have spoken from heaven. You've given us the book of God. You've given us the law. There is no way to experience life apart from Your law. Oh, Father, thank You that we know truth. Lord, thank You for opening the window that through the window of the Word we can see into the invisible. We open that window this morning and we see Jesus Christ loving sinners, loving prostitutes, loving Roman centurions, loving Jewish shop owners that were far from You yet brought near to You. We see Your blood dripping on the soil of Palestine. God, through your word, the window opens and we see you walking out of a tomb. We see scars on your hand, but we see a radiance about you that reminds us that you are a king, never again to die. Father, thank you for giving us the window of the word of God. We open that window this morning and we see heaven to come. We see the city of God and we, think, we see Dietrich Bonhoeffer walking on the shores of heaven. We see Moses with him. Lord, we see pastors and missionaries and all of your poor throughout history gathered in great joy on the shores of heaven around their Savior, comforted never to weep, never to hunger, rewarded with a hundred times more than they ever lost on earth. We thank you for their indescribable joy. We thank you for their robes of righteousness, no longer living in shame. Thank you for their purity, the joy of their holiness. Lord, thank you for the window of the Word of God that says you're trustworthy. Lord, we see that many believers were confused at times of stress before you answered their predicament, looked as if you had forsaken and forgotten, and then, Lord, the answer came. Maybe a hundred, four hundred years later, you kept your promise. Sarah had a baby, just as you promised. Father, Israel became a nation, just as you promised. And we will make it to heaven just as you promised. Thank you for the window of the Word of God. Help us to raise it tomorrow morning to breathe in celestial air, to delight in you once again. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.